0: Chapter Sixteen Part Nine of Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume Two by John Fox. Edited by William Byron Forbush. Chapter Sixteen Persecutions in England. During the reign of Queen Mary. Part nine. Cuthbert Simpson. Few professors of Christ possessed more activity and zeal than this excellent person. He not only laboured to preserve his friends from the contagion of Popery, but he laboured to guard them against the terrors of persecution. He was deacon of the little congregation over which Mr. Rowe presided as minister. Mr. Simpson has written an account of his own sufferings, which he cannot detail better than in his own words. On the 13th of December, 1557, I was committed by the council to the Tower of London. On the following Thursday, I was called into the ward-room before the constable of the Tower, and the recorder of London, Mr. Cholmley, who commanded me to inform them of the names of those who came to the English service. I answered that I would declare nothing. In consequence of my refusal, I was set upon a rack of iron, as I judged for the space of three hours. Then they asked me if I would confess. I answered as before. After being unbound, I was carried back to my lodging. The Sunday after, I was brought to the same place again, before the lieutenant and recorder of London, and they examined me. As I had answered before, so I answered now. Then the lieutenant swore by God I should tell, after which my two forefingers were bound together, and a small arrow placed between them. They drew it through so fast that the blood followed, and the arrow brake. After enduring the rack twice again, I was retaken to my lodging, and ten days after the lieutenant asked me if I would not now confess THAT WHICH THEY HAD BEFORE ASKED OF ME. I ANSWERED THAT I HAD ALREADY SAID AS MUCH AS I WOULD. THREE WEEKS AFTER I WAS SENT TO THE PRIEST, WHERE I WAS GREATLY ASSAULTED, AND AT WHOSE HAND I RECEIVED THE POPE'S CURSE FOR BEARING WITNESS OF THE RESURRECTION OF CHRIST. AND THUS I COMMEND TO YOU GOD, AND TO THE WORD OF HIS GRACE, WITH ALL THOSE WHO unfeignedly CALL UPON THE NAME OF JESUS. DESIRING GOD OF HIS ENDLESS MERCY, THROUGH THE MERITS OF HIS DEAR SON, JESUS CHRIST, TO BRING US ALL TO HIS EVERLASTING KINGDOM. AMEN. I PRAISE GOD FOR HIS GREAT MERCY SHOWN UPON US. SING HOSANNA TO THE HIGHEST WITH ME, CUTHBERT SIMPSON. GOD FORGIVE MY SINS. I ASK FORGIVENESS OF ALL THE WORLD, AND I FORGIVE ALL THE WORLD, AND THUS I LEAVE THE WORLD IN THE HOPE OF A JOYFUL RESURRECTION. If this account be duly considered, what a picture of repeated tortures it does present. But even the cruelty of the narration is exceeded by the patient meekness with which it was endured. Here are no expressions of malice, no invocations even of God's retributive justice, not a complaint of suffering wrongfully. On the contrary, praise to God, forgiveness of sin, and a forgiving all the world, concludes this unaffected, interesting narrative. Bonner's admiration was excited by the steadfast coolness of this martyr. Speaking of Mr. Simpson in the consistory, he said, "'You see what a personable man he is, and then of his patience I affirm that, if he were not a heretic, he is a man of the greatest patience that ever came before me. Thrice in one day has he been racked in the tower. In my house also he has felt sorrow, and yet never have I seen his patience broken.' The day before this pious deacon was to be condemned, while in the stocks in the bishop's coal-house, he had the vision of a glorified form which much encouraged him. This he certainly attested to his wife, to Mr. Austin, and others before his death. With this ornament of the Christian Reformation were apprehended Mr. Hugh Fox and John DeVinish. The three were brought before Bonner, March nineteenth, 1558. And the papistical articles tendered. They rejected them and were all condemned. As they worshipped together in the same society at Islington, so they suffered together in Smithfield, March twenty eighth, in whose death the God of grace was glorified and true believers confirmed. Thomas Hudson, Thomas Carman, and William Seaman were condemned by a bigoted vicar of Aylesbury named Barry. The spot of execution was called Lollard's Pit, without Bishopsgate, at Norwich. After joining together in humble petition of the throne of grace, they rose, went to the stake, and were encircled with their chains. To the great surprise of the spectators, Hudson slipped from under his chains and came forward. A great opinion prevailed that he was about to recant. Others thought that he wanted further time. IN THE MEANTIME HIS COMPANIONS AT THE STAKE URGED EVERY PROMISE AND EXHORTATION TO SUPPORT HIM. THE HOPES OF THE ENEMIES OF THE CROSS, HOWEVER, WERE DISAPPOINTED. THE GOOD MAN, FAR FROM FEARING THE SMALLEST PERSONAL TERROR AT THE APPROACHING PANGS OF DEATH, WAS ONLY ALARMED THAT HIS SAVIOR'S FACE SEEMED TO BE HIDDEN FROM HIM. FALLING UPON HIS KNEES, HIS SPIRIT WRESTLED WITH GOD, AND GOD VERIFIED THE WORDS OF HIS SON, ASK AND IT SHALL BE GIVEN the martyr rose in an ecstasy of joy, and exclaimed, Now I thank God I am strong, and care not what man can do to me. With an unruffled countenance he replaced himself under the chain, joined his fellow sufferers, and with them suffered death, to the comfort of the godly, and the confusion of Antichrist. Barry, unsatiated with this demoniacal act, summoned up two hundred persons in the town of Ailsham, whom he compelled to kneel to the cross at Pentecost, and inflicted other punishments. He struck a poor man for a trifling word with a flail, which proved fatal to the unoffending object. He also gave a woman named Alice Oxus so heavy a blow with his fist, as she met him entering the hall when he was in an ill-humor, that she died with the violence. This priest was rich and possessed great authority. He was a reprobate, and like the priesthood he abstained from marriage, to enjoy the more a debauched and licentious life. The Sunday after the death of Queen Mary, he was reveling with one of his concubines before Vespers. He then went to church, administered baptism, and in his return to his lascivious pastime, he was smitten by the hand of God. Without a moment given for repentance, he fell to the ground, and a groan was the only articulation permitted him. In him we may behold the difference between the end of a martyr and a persecutor. THE STORY OF ROGER HOLLAND In a retired close near a field in Islington, a company of decent persons had assembled, to the number of forty. While they were religiously engaged in praying and expounding to the scripture, Twenty-seven of them were carried before Sir Roger Cholmley. Some of the women made their escape. Twenty-two were committed to Newgate, who continued in prison seven weeks. Previous to their examination, they were informed by the keeper, Alexander, that nothing more was requisite to produce their discharge than to hear Mass. Easy as this condition may seem, these martyrs valued their purity of conscience more than loss of life or property. Hence, thirteen were burnt, seven in Smithfield, and six at Brentford. Two died in prison, and the other seven were providentially preserved. The names of the seven who suffered were H. Pond, R. Estland, R. Southian, M. Rickerby, J. Floyd, J. Holliday, and Roger Holland. They were sent to Newgate June 16, 1558, and executed on the 27th. This Roger Holland, a merchant tailor of London, was first an apprentice with one master Kempchen at the Black Boy in Whitling Street, giving himself to dancing, fencing, gaming, banqueting, and wanton company. He had received for his master certain money, to the sum of thirty pounds, and lost every groat at dice. Therefore he purposed to convey himself away beyond the seas, either to France or into Flanders. With this resolution he called early in the morning on a discreet servant in the house named Elizabeth, who professed the gospel and lived a life that did honour to her profession. To her he revealed the loss his folly had occasioned, regretted that he had not followed her advice, and begged her to give his master a note of hand from him, acknowledging the debt, which he would repay if ever it were in his power. He also entreated his disgraceful conduct might be kept secret, lest it would bring the grey hairs to his father with sorrow to a premature grave. The maid, with a generosity and Christian principle rarely surpassed, conscious that his imprudence might be his ruin, brought him the thirty pounds, which was part of a sum of money recently left her by legacy. Here, she said, is the sum requisite, you shall take the money, and I will keep the note, but expressly on this condition, that you abandon all lewd and vicious company, that you neither swear nor talk immodestly, and game no more, for should I learn that you do, I will immediately show this note to your master. I also require that you shall promise me to attend the daily lecture at All Hallows, and the sermon at St. Paul's every Sunday, that you cast away all your books of popery, and in their place substitute the testament and the book of service, and that you read the scriptures with reverence and fear, calling upon God for his grace to direct you in his trust. Pray also fervently to God to pardon your former offenses, and not to remember the sins of your youth, and would you obtain his favor ever dread to break his laws or offend his majesty. So shall God have you in his keeping, and grant you your heart's desire. We must honour the memory of this excellent domestic, whose pious endeavours were equally directed to benefit the thoughtless youth in this life and that which is to come. God did not suffer the wish of this excellent domestic to be thrown upon a barren soil. Within half a year the licentious Holland became a zealous professor of the gospel, and was an instrument of conversion to his father and others whom he visited in Lancashire. To their spiritual comfort and reformation from Popery. His father, pleased with his change of conduct, gave him forty pounds to commence business with in London. Then Roger repaired to London again, and came to the maid that lent him the money to pay his master withal, and said unto her, Elizabeth, here is thy money I borrowed of thee, and for the friendship, good-will, and the good counsel I have received at thy hands, to recompense thee I am not able." otherwise than to make thee my wife. And soon after they were married, which was the first year of Queen Mary. After this he remained in the congregations of the faithful, until, the last year of Queen Mary, he, with the six others aforesaid, were taken. After Roger Holland, there was none suffered in Smithfield for the testimony of the gospel, God be thanked. Flagellations by Bonner When this Catholic hyena found that neither persuasions, threats, nor imprisonment could produce any alteration in the mind of a youth named Thomas Henshaw, he sent him to Fulham, and during the first night set him in the stocks, with no other allowance than bread and water. The following morning he came to see if this punishment had worked any change in his mind, and finding none, he sent Dr. Harpsfield, his archdeacon, to converse with him. The doctor was soon out of humour at his replies, calling him peevish boy, and asked him if he thought he was about to damn his soul. "'I am persuaded,' said Thomas, "'that you labour to promote the dark kingdom of the devil, not for the love of the truth.'" These words the doctor conveyed to the bishop, who, in a passion that almost prevented articulation, came to Thomas and said, "'Dost thou answer my archdeacon thus, thou naughty boy?' "'but I'll soon handle thee well enough for it. "'Be assured.' Two willow twigs were then brought him, "'and causing the unresisting youth to kneel against a long bench "'and an arbor in his garden, "'he scourged him until he was compelled to cease "'for want of breath and fatigue. "'One of the rods was worn quite away. "'Many other conflicts did Henshaw undergo from the bishop, "'who at length, to remove him effectually, "'procured false witness to lay articles against him.' all of which the young man denied, and, in short, refused to answer any interrogatories administered to him. A fortnight after this the young man was attacked by a burning ague, and at the request of his master. Mr. Puckson, of St. Paul's churchyard, he was removed, the bishop not doubting that he had given him his death in the natural way. He, however, remained ill above a year, and in the meantime Queen Mary died, by which act of providence he escaped Bonner's rage. John Willis was another faithful person on whom the scourging hand of Bonner fell. He was the brother of Richard Willis, before mentioned burnt at Brentford. Henshaw and Willis were confined in Bonner's coal-house together, and afterward removed to Fulham, where he and Henshaw remained during eight or ten days in the stocks. Bonner's persecuting spirit betrayed itself in his treatment of Willis during his examinations, often striking him on the head with a stick, seizing him by the ears, and flipping him under the chin, saying he held down his head like a thief. This producing no signs of recantation, he took him into his orchard, and in a small arbor there he flogged him first with a willow-rod, and then with birch, until he was exhausted. This cruel ferocity arose from the answer of the poor sufferer, who, upon being asked how long it was since he had crept to the cross, replied, Not since he had come to years of discretion, nor would he, though he should be torn to pieces by wild horses. Bonner then bade him make the sign of the cross on his forehead, which he refused to do, and was thus led to the orchard. One day, when in the stocks, Bonner asked him how he liked his lodging and fare. "'Well enough,' said Willis. "'Might I have a little straw to sit or lie upon?' Just at this time came in Willis's wife, then largely pregnant, and entreated the bishop for her husband, boldly declaring that she would be delivered in the house if he were not suffered to go with her. To get rid of the good wife's importunity, and the trouble of a lying-in woman in his palace, he bade Willis make the sign of the cross, and say, In nomine Patris, et Filii et spiritus sancti, Amen. Willis omitted the sign, and repeated the words, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Bonner would have the words repeated in Latin, to which Willis made no objection, knowing the meaning of the words. He was then permitted to go home with his wife, his kinsman Robert Rouse being charged to bring him to St. Paul's the next day, whither he himself went, and subscribing to a Latin instrument of little importance, was liberated. This is the last of twenty-two taken at Islington. Rev. Richard Yeoman This devout aged person was curate to Dr. Taylor at Hadley, and eminently qualified for his sacred function. Dr. Taylor left him the curacy at his departure, but no sooner had Mr. Newall gotten the benefice than he removed Mr. Yeoman and substituted a Romish priest. After this he wandered from place to place, exhorting all men to stand faithfully to God's word, earnestly to give themselves unto prayer, with patience to bear the cross now laid upon them for their trial, with boldness to confess the truth before their adversaries and with an undoubted hope to wait for the crown and reward of eternal felicity. But when he perceived his adversaries lay wait for him, he went into Kent, and with a little pack of laces, pins, points, etc., he travelled from village to village, selling such things, and in this manner subsided himself, his wife, and children. At last Justice Moyley, of Kent, took Yeoman and set him in the stocks a day and a night. But having no evident matter to charge him with, he let him go again. Coming secretly again to Hadley, he tarried with his poor wife, who kept him privately in a chamber of the town-house, commonly called the Guildhall, more than a year. During this time the good old father abode in a chamber locked up all the day, spending his time in devout prayer, in reading the scriptures, and in carting the wool which his wife spun. His wife also begged bread for herself and her children, by which precarious means they supported themselves. Thus the saints of God sustained hunger and misery, while the prophets of Baal lived in festivity, and were costly pampered at Jezebel's table. Information being at length given to Newell that Yeoman was secreted by his wife, he came, attended by the constables, and broke into the room where the object of his search lay in bed with his wife. He reproached the poor woman with being a whore, and would have indecently pulled the clothes off, but Yeoman resisted both this act of violence and the attack upon his wife's character, adding that he defied the Pope and Popery. He was then taken out and set in stocks until day. In the cage also with him was an old man named John Dale, who had sat there three or four days, for exhorting the people during the time service was performed by Newall and his curate. His words were, O miserable and blind guides, will ye ever be blind leaders of the blind? Will ye never amend? Will ye never see the truth of God's word? Will neither God's threats nor promises enter into your hearts? Will the blood of the martyrs nothing mollify your stony stomachs? O obdurate, hard-hearted, Perverse and crooked generation to whom nothing can do good. These words he spake in fervency of spirit against the superstitious religion of Rome, wherefore Newall caused him forthwith to be attached and set into the stocks in a cage, where he was kept until Sir Henry Doyle, a justice, came to Hadley. When Yeoman was taken, the parson called earnestly upon Sir Henry Doyle to send them both to prison. Sir Henry Doyle as earnestly entreated the parson to consider the age of the men, and their mean condition. They were neither parsons of note nor preachers. Wherefore he proposed to let them be punished a day or two, and to dismiss them, at least John Dale, who was no priest, and therefore, as he had so long sat in the cage, he thought it punishment enough for this time. When the parson heard this he was exceedingly mad and in a great rage called them pestilent heretics, unfit to live in the commonwealth of Christians. Sir Henry, fearing to appear too merciful, Yeoman and Dale were pinioned, bound like thieves with their legs under the horses' bellies, and carried to Berry-Jail, where they were laid in irons. And because they continually rebuked Popery, they were carried into the lowest dungeon where John Dale, through the jail sickness and evil-keeping, died soon after. His body was thrown out and buried in the fields. He was a man of sixty-six years of age, a weaver by occupation, and well learned in the holy scriptures, steadfast in his confession of the true doctrines of Christ as set forth in King Edward's time, for which he joyfully suffered prison and chains, and from this worldly dungeon he departed in Christ to eternal glory. AND THE BLESSED PARADISE OF EVERLASTING FELICITY. AFTER DALE'S DEATH, Eoman WAS REMOVED TO NORWICH PRISON, WHERE AFTER strait AND EVIL KEEPING, HE WAS EXAMINED UPON HIS FAITH AND RELIGION, AND REQUIRED TO SUBMIT HIMSELF TO HIS HOLY FATHER, THE POPE. I DEFY HIM, QUOTH HE, AND ALL HIS DETESTABLE ABOMINATION. I WILL IN NO WISE HAVE TO DO WITH HIM. The chief articles objected to him were his marriage and the mass sacrifice. Finding he continued steadfast in the truth, he was condemned, degraded, and not only burnt, but most cruelly tormented in the fire. Thus he ended this poor and miserable life, and entered into that blessed bosom of Abraham, enjoying with Lazarus that rest which God has prepared for his elect. THOMAS BENBRIDGE Mr. Benbridge was a single gentleman in the diocese of Winchester. He might have lived a gentleman's life in the wealthy possessions of this world, but he chose rather to enter through the straight gate of persecution to the heavenly possession of life in the Lord's kingdom, than to enjoy present pleasure with disquietude of conscience. Manfully standing against the papists for the defence of the severe doctrine of Christ's gospel he was apprehended as an adversary to the Romish religion, and led for examination before the Bishop of Winchester, where he underwent several conflicts for the truth against the bishop and his colleague, for which he was condemned, and some time after brought to the place of martyrdom by Sir Richard Pexel, sheriff. When standing at the stake he began to untie his points and to prepare himself. Then he gave his gown to the keeper by way of fee, his jerkin was trimmed with gold lace, which he gave to Sir Richard Pexel, the high sheriff. His cap of velvet he took from his head and threw away. Then, lifting his mind to the Lord, he engaged in prayer. When fastened to the stake, Dr. Seaton begged him to recant, and he should have his pardon. But when he saw that nothing availed, he told the people not to pray for him, unless he would recant, no more than they would pray for a dog. Mr. Benbridge, standing at the stake with his hands together in such a manner as the priest holds his hand in his memento, Dr. Seton came to him again, and exhorted him to recant, to whom he said, Away, Babylon, away! One that stood by said, Sir, cut his tongue out. Another, a temporal man, railed at him worse than Dr. Seton had done. When they saw he would not yield, they bade the tormentors to light the pile, before he was in any way covered with faggots. The fire first took away a piece of his beard, at which he did not shrink. Then it came on the other side and took his legs, and the nether-stocking of his hose being leather, they made the fire pierce the sharper, so that the intolerable heat made him exclaim, I recant! And suddenly he trussed the fire from him. Two or three of his friends being by, wished to save him, they stepped to the fire to help remove it, for which kindness they were sent to jail. The sheriff also, of his own authority, took him from the stake, and remitted him to prison, for which he was sent to the fleet, and lay there some time. Before, however, he was taken from the stake, Dr. Seton wrote articles for him to subscribe to, to these Mr. Benbridge made so many objections that Dr. Seton ordered them to set fire again to the pile. Then, with much pain and grief of heart, he subscribed to them upon a man's back. This done, his gown was given him again, and he was led to prison. While there he wrote a letter to Dr. Seaton, recanting those words he had spoken at the stake and the articles which he had subscribed for he was grieved that he had ever signed them. The same day's night he was again brought to the stake, where the vile tormentors rather broiled than burnt him. The Lord give his enemies repentance. Mrs. Prest From the number condemned in this fanatical reign, it is almost impossible to obtain the name of every martyr, or to embellish the history of all with anecdotes and exemplifications of Christian conduct. Thanks be to providence, our cruel task begins to draw toward a conclusion, with the end of the reign of papal terror and bloodshed. Monarchs who sit upon thrones possessed by hereditary right, should, of all others, consider that the laws of nature are the laws of God, and hence that the first law of nature is the preservation of their subjects maxims of persecutions, of torture, and of death, they should leave to those who have affected sovereignty by fraud or by sword. But where, except among a few miscreant emperors of Rome, and the Roman pontiffs, shall we find one whose memory is so damned to everlasting fame, as that of Queen Mary? Nations bewail the hour which separates them for from a beloved governor. But, with respect to that of Mary, It was the most blessed time of her whole reign. Heaven has ordained three great scourges for national sin's plague, pestilence, and famine. It was the will of God in Mary's reign to bring a fourth upon this kingdom, under the form of papistical persecution. It was sharp but glorious. The fire which consumed the martyrs has undermined the popedom. And the Catholic states at present the most bigoted and unenlightened, are those which are sunk lowest in the scale of moral dignity and political consequence. May they remain so, until the pure light of the gospel shall dissipate the darkness of fanaticism and superstition. But to return. End of chapter 16, part 9